Revelation chapter 19. As we've seen, after the destruction of the great prostitute in chapter 18, in chapter 19, there is a scene of praise, rejoicing, and worship. As we saw last week, the only four times in the Bible that we see the word hallelujah are found here in this chapter. It means literally, you should praise the Lord or praise you the Lord. Um, we looked at the first three times that it is used. The first time, it says, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. There is praise for God's deliverance, for his greatness seen in his glory and his power, because his judgments are just and true. See, we may not always be certain about our own judgment or the judgment of others. Uh, there should be no such fears about the judgments of God. Which, as I said last week, is a good thing, because the judgments that are described here seem really horrific. But we are here on earth, and those who are in heaven, whose vision is unclouded by sin, see things clearly, and they sing praise to God for his judgments. And what are his judgments? He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Just, again, to, to remind you, the opposite of vengeance is worship. When we take matters into our own hands, and Gia read to us from Romans 12 that we are not to take revenge, when we do that, it is a form of anti-worship. Worship is giving these things to God and saying, you know what has been done to me, I commit this to you. And then when God takes care of it, then there is to be worship and to praise God for what he has done. I suspect that we are such a nature that, that that is not quite as satisfying to us as it is getting to take revenge. But biblically, those things belong to God because he alone sees things clearly and in their entirety. We don't know all the circumstances, all the reasons. We just know that we have been wronged. The second time we see or we hear hallelujah, Again, they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And if the first one presents problems, and this one certainly does, because it seems that, as I said last week, the people in heaven are almost giddy over the judgment that has come on the great prostitute. They seem so vindictive. But no, they are praising God for the trueness and the justness of his judgments. And I think our hesitation reflects a lack of confidence on our part in God's actions. Those in heaven see clearly and they praise God. The third time we hear hallelujah, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fall down and worship God who sits on the throne and they cried, Amen. That is, we agree. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Just to remind you, the 24 elders represent the church. The four living creatures represent the rest of God's creation here on earth. And they join in with the chorus and they say, yes, God is to be praised for what he has done. Today we begin with the fourth and final hallelujah. It begins in verse 6. And let's just read our entire passage today, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like peals of thunder, shouting, hallelujah, 
for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is the basis of this praise, this fourth and final praise? Well, the Lord, all God, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give him glory. See, the judgments are proof, not that any was needed, but they are proof that God is in control, not the dragon, not the first beast, not the second beast, Circumstances, I mean, if you were a news reporter back then for CNN and you saw circumstances going on, you probably would not say the Lord God reigns. You would say that the Roman Empire reigns. They are in control. And in Palestine, in terms of religious matters, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they ruled. And particularly as the church comes under persecution, you wouldn't say that the church has any authority whatsoever, that God rules. No, things seem to be really out of whack. No. The Lord God Almighty reigns, and for this he is to be praised. You see, it isn't the impersonal forces of history, the natural cycle of the rise and fall of empires, that empires come along and they develop, and then they sort of reach their apex, and then they go into decline, and then they fall. No, God rules. The things that happen in human history are the result of God's actions. And it isn't simply, I think, here that God rules in matters of nature or even of human history, but that he rules in terms of his kingdom. The seventh angel who had the seventh trumpet says in chapter 11, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders respond, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power, and have begun to reign. The church, the kingdom of God, shows God's reign in a unique way and in a special way. And those who are in heaven praise God for this. But there's something else, and I think this is very important for us to see. It isn't simply that God is in control. Not just of creation, he is. Not just human history, he is. But of his church, yes, he is. But there's something else. And that is that the foundational virtue, if you wish, the foundational purpose or motivation of his rule is love. I think in going through the book of Revelation, we haven't heard that a lot. And we may be so intrigued by the matter of judgment that we may, in fact, forget that what drives God, if we could put it that way, His character is that of love. And that's why what follows speaks of that. Let us rejoice. Okay, why? For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, uh, let me see, fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And now, hopefully, it 
begins to come together a bit. We should understand that the destruction of the great prostitute, the unfaithful wife, and the marriage of the lamb and his bride, the faithful wife, are correlative events. It is the end of one marriage, if you wish. Israel, who was bound by covenant to God, the unfaithful wife, the prostitute wife, has now been destroyed. And a new wife, the bride, has come in her place. And this is the church. The old covenant has been dissolved and the new covenant has been enacted. We saw this in chapter 11, that the temple in heaven is now open. We can now go to God freely because of Christ. We don't go through a priest. We don't go through an intermediary. We can go directly to God because of the new covenant. By the way, if you look at the Old Testament law, uh, the penalty in the Old Testament for adultery was death. Death by stoning. Which meant that the marriage was dissolved. There's no longer a marriage because one of the partners is dead. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 7. That once that, uh, a partner has died, um, we speak of widows and widowers, and they did in, in that time as well. But the marriage is dissolved. The surviving partner is now free to marry. Israel has been destroyed, or will be destroyed in 70 AD. The covenant has been dissolved. And as Jesus said, this is the new covenant between him and his church. With the destruction of the prostitute, the unfaithful wife, comes the presentation of the bride, the faithful wife. Now, John's vision of the bride will not be sort of fleshed out until chapter 21. But I find it interesting that uh, the prostitute is first mentioned in chapter 14, almost sort of a throwaway thing, the great prostitute. And it's not till chapter 17 that we're given the details. Likewise, here the bride is presented, but we will learn more about her in a couple of chapters. Her grand entrance, if you wish, will be in chapter 21. There are two things, though, here about the bride that I want to mention. Let me stop a minute. The Lamb is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that thus far, and the Lord willing, we will see it next week, where we will look at the rider on the white horse, the victorious Lamb. He is the bridegroom. Okay. But the bride, this is something new. Uh, this is something that's been thrown out of us and won't actually be fully explained till later on. Two things I want to examine. First of all, the bride has made herself ready. As John describes things, the church has successfully met trials and tribulations, has passed through great tribulations, and is now ready for the marriage. If you remember, John has seen the martyrs in heaven, those who have died for the faith. They were faithful till death. And now it is time for the marriage supper, the wedding supper. The call of the book of Revelation is to endure and to remain pure. This call is to God's people, the bride, and they have done so. By the way, Paul writes about this, and let me read to you uh, from Ephesians. I think of Tom here who was able to go to Ephesus. It's a real place. It had real people. And Paul wrote to them, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church. We might even say a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He was very concerned about the false teachers that had come in. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. In other words, the reason I came to preach the gospel is that you might come into the bride of Christ and I want to present you to Christ as a pure virgin, as a bride without wrinkle or blemish. But I am afraid, he continues, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In the language of John, Paul is afraid that the Corinthians, rather than being this bride in fine linen, will be like the great prostitute, those who go after other gods. Jude, in his doxology, writes wonderfully, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault. Without fault. And with great joy. So, first of all, the bride is making herself ready. That's the first sign. The second thing is, it was given to her to wear. And then we are told about the linen. Fine linen, bright and clean. The King James, I think, is much clearer in this matter, and I would refer you to it. Um, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. That is, she is granted the privilege of wearing this linen. It isn't something she does on herself that she has the capacity to do herself. It is something that is given to her. The other night, Gia was uh, reading something that she mentioned to me. Um, a, a brief thing by Soren Kierkegaard, the, the Danish philosopher. He was writing about God working in us. And at the top it asked the question, if God is working, why am I sweating? And the second question, does God work through us? I think it's a natural question. Am I to do the work? Does God do the work? I mean, does the bride put on this fine linen or does God give her the fine linen? I mean, what goes on here? I think what we find in Scripture is a dual emphasis. That it is God who is at work in us, but then we are to work as a result of what he has done. And this isn't simply a New Testament concept, by the way. We find this in the Old Testament as well. Leviticus. And I mean, you can't get much more Old Testament than Leviticus. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm sorry, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I, the Lord, who makes you holy. In other words, make yourselves holy. I make you holy. And you're like, well, which is it? Am I supposed to do this or are you supposed to do this? It is God who begins the work and we are to continue the work. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we just stop right there, I think we would have a very distorted view. Okay, it's up to me to work and work and work and get my salvation so I can get to heaven. But he doesn't stop there. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. The bride puts on the fine linen. It is granted to her to wear the fine linen. The two aspects are both necessary. 
this past week I was listening to the Old Testament on CD and I, something caught my ear I was in Leviticus um, I'm sorry, in Exodus and then on to Leviticus but it, earlier in the book, in chapter 29 God says to Moses there, that is at the tabernacle I will meet with you and speak to you there also I will meet with the Israelites the place will be consecrated by my glory in other words, my presence will consecrate the tabernacle and then, in chapter 40, at the end of the book, Moses is given instructions about how to consecrate the tabernacle. And he gets olive oil and these spices and everything and goes around splashing stuff. And I'm like, and it, it just caught my ear as I was listening. I'm like, Wait, this has already been done. God said he would consecrate the tabernacle by his presence. And now he's telling Moses to consecrate. There are two aspects. There is God's part, there is our part. Our part will not exist apart from God. But we cannot say, well, we'll just sort of kick back and let God do everything. No. We are to be involved as well. And I think this helps us to, to understand what follows because we are told in parenthesis in the NIV, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we've already seen fine linen used uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, the numberless uh, crowd, those from every tribe, nation, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they're wearing white robes, and they cried out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then when John asks about the white robes, he is told, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, wait a minute. I, I thought... I thought the robes represented the righteous works of the saints. And now you're telling me the white robes are white because of the blood of the Lamb. The two things, again, coming together. That without the blood of the Lamb, we're not going to have white robes. We are not going to have the capacity to do the things God has called us to do. I don't think that John is suggesting for a moment that human beings, that Christians, have the capacity to do righteous things on their own. If we go back to the Old Testament, I think we have a clearer vision of what John is saying. In Isaiah chapter 61, a wonderful verse, I delight greatly in the Lord, Isaiah writes. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adores his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I mean, Isaiah says, basically, hallelujah, praise God, because he is the one who adorns me with this, with salvation and with a robe of righteousness. Then we read, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Now, we need to be clear about something. Um, those who are invited are the bride. Okay? It is not as though he's like, hey, let's go to a wedding and let's go see the bride and the lamb get married. No. Those who are invited are, in fact, the bride. It is the church, the body of Christ. Two things just to keep in the back of your minds as we go through, uh, and we'll, come, we'll pick this up again in chapters 21 and 22. First of all, the place of food in Scripture. It isn't simply that they're invited to the wedding. 
they're invited to the wedding supper. There is a meal. It's thought of in terms of a meal and food. I can remember when I was younger, and I don't, I don't know why, but it seemed that every wedding I went to, they had punch and cake. And that was it. And then later on, I started going to weddings that had meals. I'm like, whoa, this is different. This is very different. Well, culturally, uh, in the Jewish culture at that point, there wasn't a religious service per se. There was food. That's what they did. The bride would come and the groom would come and they'd have a feast, sometimes for several days. And then everyone would say, you're married. Go home. So the wedding here is not seen as, okay, let's go hear the preacher say some words and do the vows and then get some cake and punch and go home. No, this is a full-scale meal. Two things to consider. First of all, the place of food in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, food is mentioned, and not simply food as something we need to sustain us, though we certainly do, but food as describing who we are and what we are supposed to do. Um, it is necessary that we have food. And so after God told Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth, God then said to them, I give you every seed-bearing fruit or seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. In other words, I have provided food for you. Then he puts them in the Garden of Eden, which has all these trees that have all of this fruit. And then there is the forbidden tree. And the fall of mankind is seen in terms of eating, eating something that is forbidden. I find it interesting that people always think of it as an apple and sort of miss that it doesn't really matter what fruit it was. It was the eating of it that was an act of disobedience. And you and I are here today in a fallen condition because somebody ate something they shouldn't eat. That's how it's described in Scripture. What about redemption? The Passover is pictured and remembered with a meal. The instituting of the new covenant is pictured with a meal, the Lord's Supper. The worship system in the Old Testament, with the burnt offerings, if you'd committed a sin, everything is to be burned, but other offerings, the fellowship offerings, you give part of it, the rest of it you keep and you eat there in the presence of God. Eating was a part of worship. It's also a part of fellowship here in the book of Revelation itself. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, Here I am, the King James says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So I think as we approach this idea of the wedding supper, we need to remember the place of eating in Scripture. Secondly, we need to remember the place of feasting in Scripture. Not simply eating, but actually feasting. The culmination of God's work. When you read the Old Testament prophets, when they look ahead to this, this wonderful time in the future, it's generally described in terms of a feast. Um, Isaiah chapter 25. And listen to what Isaiah writes and see if it doesn't remind you so much of what John writes. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the peoples like the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth 
the Lord has spoken. And that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The coming of the kingdom is seen in terms of a great, great feast. But then also I was struck by the fact that Jesus, in telling parables, uh, talking about the kingdom, several times used the metaphor, the analogy of a feast, and not just the feast, but a wedding feast. And um, just listen while I read this. Um, you may be familiar with it, but uh, just listen as Jesus tells the parable of the great, great banquet. When one of those at the table with Jesus heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So the Jewish mindset is, yes, to eat in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who, invite, who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The gospel says, come, come, and is to come to a banquet. And here we have the marriage supper of the lamb and the bride. So we shouldn't be surprised that the culmination of the relationship between God and his people First of all, it is described in marital terms, a husband and a wife. But it is also described in terms of the wedding supper, this great feast of rejoicing. When we get to chapter 22, we will see even more about this, the tree of life that has 12 crops of trees, uh, 12, 12 crops of fruit, um, one every month of the year. The angel tells John, these are the true words of God. I suspect that John must have been overwhelmed. He has seen the destruction of the unfaithful wife. And now he hears of this wedding that is coming for the bride, the faithful wife. And at this point, he falls down at the feet of the angel. And for the second time in the book of Revelation, John is rebuked. John is corrected. The first time was in chapter 17, when he saw the great prostitute in and he was astonished. He, he marveled at it. Um, and I, I mentioned this before. The King James, I think, puts it so much, so much more clearly. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Here he sees this great prostitute on the scarlet beast. And rather than being repulsed, he's just, just filled with admiration for this beautiful woman. The Bible is realistic. Evil doesn't always appear evil. Sometimes it is seductively beautiful. 
I mean, when Eve looked at the fruit on the tree, she saw that it looked good. It looked like it might taste good. And John has to be corrected. And the angel says, why are you, why are you astonished? You know, why are you marveling at this? This is not something that you should admire. Let me tell you what's going on here. Um, here we have a second time that John is corrected. Here the issue might, might seem to be that of mistaken identity. That is that John is worshiping an angel, perhaps thinking that this is the Lord Jesus himself because of what the angels had to say. Just this marvelous news that he has just proclaimed. But the angel says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm a servant just like you. Now, if you think about it, it's really fascinating that this is even included in the book of Revelation. I mean, we've been talking about cosmic things here. I mean, about falling stars, the destruction of the earth. I mean, we've been talking about major things. The language is, is, is cosmic. And now John makes a mistake. We might even want to attribute it to enthusiasm or just being overwhelmed with emotion. I'm thinking if I'm writing the book of Revelation, I probably don't include this. Because it seems like a rather insignificant event compared to everything else. And the fact that it is included must mean that it has some significance. Now, is it possible that John has fallen into idolatry, that he is now worshiping someone other than God. That is a possibility. It seems unlikely because John is in the spirit, that is that the spirit is carrying him along and giving him the words to write. He's in a state of prophetic vision. It seems unlikely that John would fall into idolatry, but he does make a mistake. He is corrected, so something is going on. Then the angel gives this very strange uh, answer here. Um, you know, rather than saying, as Jesus did to the devil, you should worship God and him only, you know, read the Old Testament. He says, you know, I'm just like you. I'm a servant like you. The answer is seen in two things. First of all, I'm not completely convinced that John was worshiping in the sense we think of worshiping God. The word that is used is found throughout the Bible, which means to show reverence, to fall at the feet of someone, maybe to kiss their feet or to kiss, kiss the hem of their robe, uh, but not worship in saying that you're God. It is possible, but I, I, I don't know that that's what is intended here. I think the answer is where the, an, the angel says to him, I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, you should not be worshiping me perhaps you should not even be showing reverence to me somehow elevating me above yourself I'm just like you I'm a fellow servant now granted angels biblically are presented as higher than us but we are presented as higher than them in that we have we are the people of God and they are not but the angel says listen I'm just like you I'm just a fellow servant then we read the statement, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And this seems to almost be out of left field. I mean, what exactly is being said here? The work of the spirit is singular. The spirit has one job. That is to speak of Christ. 
The work he does in our lives is all wrapped around that single task of telling us of Christ, of prophesying of Christ, of preaching of Christ. And so if you speak of Christ, this is the spirit of prophecy. Listen to what Jesus said the night before he was put to death. When the counselor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, the Spirit comes, he'll talk about me, the Lord Jesus. When you go out and preach, you'll talk about me, the Lord Jesus, because you have been with me from the beginning. Again, he says, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will bring glory to me, again, to Jesus, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. The work of the Spirit is to speak of Jesus. And the work of the church is to speak of Jesus. And the angel says, listen, John, we're doing the same thing. We have the same job. We are here to speak of Christ, the Lamb. And the Lord willing, next week we will look at the Lamb. And the final sevens, the final group of sevens, we've had three thus far. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. And now we have the seven statements, and I saw. And then the prophecy will be completed. Two things to consider and to meditate on um, as we leave. First of all, we all face the danger of doing what John did, and that is going by appearances. He did it twice. First he sees a great prostitute and she's this, this beautiful thing and he is filled with admiration. He's wrong. She is the great prostitute. And secondly, he hears the angel. He hears the majesty of the message and he thinks this is more than an angel and he is wrong. And the angel has to correct and say, listen, I'm just like you. I'm a fellow servant. One of the purposes of the book of Revelation is to inform the reader that appearances can be deceiving, particularly when you look at human history. The people of God would be under attack, and that's what we've seen in chapters 12 through 19. Physical attack from the beast from the sea. The church is going to go through terrible persecution, and there will be the temptation to think that political power is the ultimate power that no one can defeat the Roman Empire. They are the power in the world. The temptation will be to give in to the fear that such power can create. No, appearances are deceiving. And then there will be the temptation of spiritual deception, the temptation to embrace new idols. Even Jesus said if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. No, appearances can be deceiving. Jesus said, listen, if you hear that Christ is in the desert, don't go there. Don't go there. And then there is the temptation of material seduction. This is the great prostitute. The temptation to see the world as the ultimate thing. That we need to collect and get as much as we can, to experience as much as we can, to feel as much as we can, because this is it. No. Things are not always as they seem.
Unfortunately, in the modern world, possessions seem to order and arrange our lives and our living. In the parable of Jesus, the cares of this world may choke the word of God and make it unfruitful. What the dragon has been trying to do in chapters 12 through 19 is to get the faithful bride, dressed in linen, to be unfaithful. He got the prostitute to do that. Now he's trying to do that to the church. And the church needs to see that things are not always as they appear. And then the second thing, and that is we must remember the place of our responsibility in doing what we are told. We are responsible to be obedient. We are responsible to obey. But always remember that apart from God's grace, we can't obey. And again, it's that, it's that the two aspects of it. And being human, we don't do that very well. We tend to go to one or the other. Either we say, well, I'll do it all myself, or I'm not going to do anything and I'll let God do it all. And the coming of Christ into the world and the bringing of the church and creating of the church is to say that, yes, it begins with God, but God is working through his people. We have the life of God. We have the spirit of God in us. It isn't just God who's going to do it. And we're not just going to do it by ourselves. In an amazing synergy, the infinite personal God wants to work with and through his people to transform us. I can't do it by myself, but neither am I to be passive and say, Lord, you're just going to have to change me. You're going to have to sanctify me. I, I, you know, here I am, do it. No. We are to work in conjunction. We are to be obedient. We look to him for his guidance, his strength, his wisdom, his life, the spirit within us. But understand that we are not to be passive. Neither are we to rely on ourselves. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I would dare say if there's one thing that I forget most as a Christian, it is that. I find myself going back and forth from the, you know, and and we live in a world of self-help. Yes, I'm going to get my act together to a a passive, well, you know, it's just the way I am, Lord. You're going to have to change me. And, And to recognize and to remember that it is, in fact, to be a conjoining. It's a wedding. It's a marriage, after all, isn't it? The language that is used. It is the coming together of the Creator and His creatures to do His work in the world. Jesus told His disciples, apart from Me, you can do nothing. Absolutely true. But neither are we supposed to say, well, since I can't do anything apart from you, here, you do it all. And it's something by the grace of God that we need to remember and to put into practice into our lives every day. Because the temptation is to go to one or the other. And we need them both. Let's pray together. Father, I fear that sometimes we are filled with enthusiasm and resolve and 
we make resolutions that we will do certain things as though we are capable on our own. And generally, by your grace, we fail miserably. And then other times we feel particularly spiritual and and we say, well, no, no, I'll, I'll just put it all on God and let him do it. And again, often by your grace, we fail miserably. May we see, as we see here with the bride, that it is a work that you have begun in us. But you want to live among us and work with us. You call us to be obedient and not not simply to do what you say, but to work hand in hand with you. That we might be transformed into the people you want us to be. I thank you for your love and how it informs all that you do. That you have a people, you've called out a people, not just to have a people, but it is because of your love. And you judge because of your love. I thank you for the time we could spend together today. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Sing the doxology together. have some birthday cake upstairs as we remember and celebrate Tessa's birthday. Micah, did you bring some of your work with you, your sketchbook? Mike has brought some of his artwork. I wanted you to see some of his artwork. They'll be leaving in a couple weeks and at least see some of the work that he's done before he goes. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.